All right. If you are new with us, we welcome you. You're probably wondering what you got yourself into, um, but uh, good to have you here. Uh, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning, so please turn to John chapter 9. We uh, have been studying John 9 for a couple weeks, and um, it's obvious from just reading it at a glance, you can see that it's about uh, a man who was uh, healed of blindness. Jesus actually healed more people with blindness in the Gospels than any other disease or malady. Uh, what makes this unique, though, is this is the only case recorded in the New, uh, Gospels where Jesus healed a man who was born blind. He was born blind. And uh, from a spiritual standpoint, I, I think, personally, as we've been studying it, I think the story is more about a man who received his spiritual sight than it is about a man who received his physical sight, although that was obviously an important part of the story, too. But um, it was his physical healing that led to the most important healing that man received on that day, the spiritual healing that made him a child of God and a true worshiper. Look at verse 38. So as we've already said, John 9 is a continuation of John chapter 8. You thought we were going to be finally done with John 8. I uh, caught you. Uh, because John 9 really is just a continuation. Happens at the same time on the same day. Of course, John 8 was built around Jesus' famous statement in verse 12 that he said, I am the light of the world. And as we have been saying, it was no coincidence that the Lord Jesus Christ in expressing his passion and purpose in life. Verse 4 of John 9, I must work the works of him who sent me. And of course, the passion of his heart, the work he was sent to do. Well, you can compare that to Luke 19, verse 10. I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. That's why he came. And as he expressed that passion, he once again in verse 5 referred to himself as the light of the world. No coincidence that from there he went right to healing a man born blind. As we have said, it was sin that robbed man of his spiritual sight, mankind. Plagued the human race with spiritual darkness and plunged us into that darkness. It was sin that imposed spiritual blindness on all of us. And Jesus, the light of the world, came to this world to restore our spiritual sight by bringing us God's light, his truth. You can read the beginning verses of John's Gospel. Uh, he uh, entered the world as light. The darkness could not comprehend it. The Greek is could not extinguish it. Couldn't really do anything about it. Because light is always more powerful than darkness. We talk in spiritual, in spiritual terms, God's light is always his truth. It's always more powerful than Satan's lies. And so Jesus, as light, came into a world filled with Satan's lies and deception. And he came to give us his light uh, and, of course, his life and to make us new creations. That was the work of God. That was the work of God. Now, I believe the Holy Spirit is using this man, as we have talked about, to represent all of us, fallen mankind. In other words, he is a picture of the natural man. Keep that in mind as we go through this. Back up to verse 1. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. 
When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Now I have to say, this seems like a rather unorthodox way for the Lord to have healed this man. Uh, imagine spitting on the ground and then mixing with the dirt, making clay, and then uh, rubbing the mixture into this man's eyes. Uh, we, we do know from earlier uh, accounts, Matthew 9, for one, that Jesus healed two blind men by merely touching their eyes. And then in Mark 8, he uh, healed another blind man by just spitting in his eyes. Some of, uh, I, I'm, I'm wondering if some ministry hasn't uh, tried to clone Jesus' spit and you know, miracle spit. Just buy it from us and rub it on stuff and you can be healed. I'm, I'm sure there's a group out there that's done that. I mean, you know, they've, they've, some groups have sold more slivers of the cross to reconstruct, you know, a forest. Okay, so they, you know, people are making money all the time with the Lord. But um, the point I'm making is that the Lord Jesus, he, uh, he healed in a variety of ways, didn't he? You never see him healing any one way all the time. Why is that? He's God. Why does he, did he need to heal in a variety of ways? Uh, why did he just speak the word to everybody? He did heal some with that, with just a word. Others, again, he uh, touched, he, some he used spittle. and um, he, he often varied his methods of healing people. You know why? To keep us from formulizing his ministry, from turning it into a formula, a methodology. See, we're prone to do that, aren't we? Uh, that, you know, and, and then by copying it, this is the only way to do it. And Jesus didn't want that, okay? He, uh, he wa he, in other words, he, he wanted to keep us from focusing on the mechanics uh, or manner of healing and in the process miss the message in the healing. So verse 7, And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, got folks that know him, that live around him, is not this, is this not he who sat and begged? Some said, yeah, it's him. Others, well, I don't know, it kind of looks like him. And the guy said, no, it's me. All right, it's me. <laughs> Look, I was thinking about this the other day. If the Holy Spirit, and I believe he is, is using this man to be a picture of blind, fallen humanity, saved and then given sight, then we need to ask ourselves the question. Once we're saved, shouldn't our closest friends, neighbors, co-workers, and family members respond to us the same way this man's friends responded to his healing? Think about it, right? I mean... If we're living our lives in the Spirit, I mean, you get saved and you're walking closely with the Lord, shouldn't our friends, the people who know us the best, shouldn't they say, you know, is this the same person I've known all these years? Um, I'm not sure, maybe. Some would say, well, possibly, but uh, <laughs> he's so different, you know? I mean, shouldn't there be such a difference in our lives that those who know us the best have a hard time recognizing us. I think so, right? Isn't that what it means to be a new creation in Christ? Anybody who says they're a Christian and yet has never been transformed at all, they have gone on living the same old life 
To me, I challenge that claim. You, there's no way you could be saved, filled with the Spirit, and remain the same. It's impossible. So dramatic should the change be that people who knew you should look at your life and say, what happened to you? Who are you? You know, who are you? Uh, you're different. You're not the same person. Where's, where's my friend? I'm here. It's me. I, I'm the same guy. I just love Jesus. He's been working in my life. Okay? Verse 10, Therefore they said to him, How were your eyes opened? His friends did. He answered and said, Well, a man called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? I don't know. I was blind. I don't know where he is. <laughs> Verse 13, they brought him, his friends brought him, who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was the Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, well, he put clay on my eyes. I, notice he didn't say he spit on the ground. I'm not sure the guy knew Jesus had spit on the ground. Okay? He just knew he mixed clay up because he felt the clay in his eyes. But, uh, you know, I don't know if he really heard the Lord, uh, you know. Uh, okay. Anyway, so, so you know, how, how did he heal you, the Pharisees? Well, you know, I, you made clay and put it on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Verse 16. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Miracles is the idea. And there was a division among them. Now, you wouldn't know this from just reading the passage. But uh, verse 16 reflects two schools of thought that were prevalent in Jesus' day. Uh, one led by Rabbi Shammai, the other by Rabbi Hillel. The followers of Rabbi Shammai argued that a man who violates the Sabbath in any way for any reason is a sinner. Well, the followers of Rabbi Hillel maintained that a man who performs an obvious good work on the Sabbath is not a sinner. So they're kind of fighting with, you know, that, that's, they belong each to these schools, all right? Now, I, I have to just say this. By this time in Jesus' ministry, we're about half a year, maybe five months from the cross. I can't imagine there were too many Pharisees that were kind of still ambivalent or confused about who Jesus was. Most of them had made up their mind, although some of them seems like they were still wrestling with, well, he can't be bad if he's done something good on the Sabbath. Can't be a sinner. But I think for the most part, I think the chapter reflects this, that for the most part, most of the Pharisees by this time hated him. You had your little group like Nicodemus that had secretly become disciples of Christ. But for the most part, Pharisees numbered about 6,000 in Jesus' day. I think for the most part, um, most of the Pharisees had come to hate Jesus. In fact, by this time, they wanted him dead. Why did they hate him so much? For a number of reasons, but I think the number one reason was because he went around violating the Sabbath. That seems to have been their big issue. And that's why they were so angry with him. Because he did so many good things. He healed so many people um, on the Sabbath. Now we know from uh, Matthew 12, Luke 13, uh, and other places that uh, he healed a man on the Sabbath with a withered hand. Remember that? guy's hand was completely, uh, probably his arm was completely paralyzed, withered. And on the Sabbath, uh, Jesus uh, healed him. 
We, we have read earlier, I'll give you just a couple examples of this. Earlier in John's Gospel, chapter 5, remember how Jesus had healed a man at the pool of Bethesda, a guy who was lame for 38 years, walks up, heals the guy, and then to add insult to injury, after he heals him, take, tells him to get up, take up his bed mat, and walk away. Well, the Pharisees were there. And that really infuriated them. Because when they saw this guy walking with his bedroll through the, through the area there, and they challenged him, what are you doing? It's the Sabbath. You're not supposed to carry a burden. I don't know. A man named Jesus healed me, told me to take up my bed and walk. Ooh! And they were just furious with Christ, you know? And, and that led them in John 5, 16, where we read this, for this reason the Jews, and again, John's gospel, when it says the Jews, means the Jewish leadership, primarily the Pharisees, persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Now the question is, why did Jesus seem to go out of his way to uh, heal people on the Sabbath, thus provoking these religious leaders? Well, first of all, I'm not sure he was really trying to provoke them. Maybe, I don't know. You know, maybe he was. Uh, I, I don't think he was purposely trying to aggravate the Pharisees. It was just that the Lord Jesus only had a certain amount of time to fulfill the ministry his Father had given him before the cross. Right? He said that in, chapter, in verse 4 of chapter 9. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is still day. The night is coming. When no one can work, the implication is i got to do the works of my father. I don't care if it's the Sabbath or not. I've only got, I can't take a day off a week. I've got to do the works of my father. Now, here's another reason, which is the main reason why he did work on the Sabbath, um, was because as God incarnate, he was the one who created the Sabbath in the first place. He was the Lord of the Sabbath, okay? We'll talk about that more in a moment. Now, as we said when we studied John chapter 5, the reason the Jewish people were so protective of the Sabbath, the reason it was so sacred to them, was because it was the sign of the covenant that God made with Moses and the children of Israel from Mount Sinai. The covenant that made them listen his chosen people, and a holy nation unto him. The Sabbath, the Sabbath was the one thing that separated the Jewish people from every other nation on the face of the earth. You say, what about circumcision? There were other nations that practiced circumcision. I don't know if you know that. There were other nations that practiced circumcision. No other nation uh, kept the Sabbath. That was, they were the only ones. To tell an agrarian people, to take one day off a week, especially at harvest time, was unique among the ancient peoples of this world. It made the Jewish people absolutely different, stand out. They were just unique because they kept the Sabbath because God had commanded them to as a sign of the covenant that he made with them. And so one of the reasons the Jewish leaders hated Jesus so much and wanted to kill him is because they thought by breaking the Sabbath, and, and they, they went around saying, you know, you teach others to break the Sabbath, probably because they said that because at one point, remember how he and his disciples were walking through the grain field on the Sabbath, and they were hungry? And so it says they were ripping uh, the wheat off the stalks, and of course then they would take it in their hand, and they would rub it. That was threshing, separating the uh, grain from the, you know, 
from the wheat. Then they would open their hands and gently blowing it, blowing the chaff away. That was called winnowing before they put it in their mouth. They're harvesting, threshing, winnowing. It was not against the law to actually eat grain from your neighbor's field if you were hungry. You just couldn't bring a sickle in and chop a whole bunch down and take it home with you. You could take some with your hand, right? So they weren't stealing. That wasn't the issue. But they were breaking all these other rules with regard to the Sabbath. And so they interpreted that as Jesus teaching his disciples to break the Sabbath. The idea was that Jesus, in their minds, was trying to bring down Judaism, was trying to, you know, circumvent or do away with the law of Moses altogether, thus, you know, removing the uniqueness of Israel from other nations of the world. These men, if they weren't anything, they were zealous for the law. Now, granted, uh, the law did bring them a lot of power and prestige. I'm sure they didn't want to lose that as well. But let's give it to them. They were zealous for the law, okay? So they thought Jesus was a lawbreaker because he violated the Sabbath. I want you to understand something, that Jesus never violated Sabbath law as God intended the Sabbath to be. He only violated, listen, their interpretation of Sabbath law. When God originally gave the Sabbath law, it was a very simple concept. They were to work their field six days out of the week on the seventh day, Saturday. It was the Sabbath. They were to rest. Now, you realize, of course, they were farmers. Again, they lived in an agrarian culture. And uh, they worked hard. They didn't have, you know, any kind of uh, modern-day tools. They, they didn't have the, the, the diesel-powered tractors and combines and things. Everything they did, if they plowed the ground, it was all done through animals and they would get behind the animals and they would be you know working that plot was very difficult rigorous work physically speaking so god said you need a day a week to rest your bodies your animals need to rest as well take the day off and in the process spend some quality time with me okay that was the idea very simple principle and so on um in fact if you study the uh, written law of god and I'm thinking primarily the Ten Commandments there in Exodus 20. Uh, if you study the Sabbath, uh, it was a relatively simple law containing only 60 words in the English. I know because I counted them, okay? Very simple, okay? Just take the day off, rest, okay? Uh, you need it, your animals need it, so on. So a very simple concept. However, the rabbis took a simple concept and turned it into, listen, an unbearable burden. As they begin to interpret what God meant by what he said. Now, here's where people get into trouble. It, there's a, it's often a big difference between what God actually said and what others teach you he meant. Be careful. If what you read in Scripture is pretty clear, stay with that interpretation. You get into trouble when you listen to people, and they're not all cults. There are Christians, real Christians, who because of their theological persuasion will try to tell you, well, here's what the Bible says, but it's not what God really meant. Now, I've done that a little bit to clarify some things, but not entire chapters and whole sections, okay? Um, the simplest understanding is often the best and the most legitimate 
understand. Jesus said these things are hidden from the wise and prudent often and revealed to children. Okay? Because most of God's word is very simple. I, God said what he meant, meant what he said, that kind of thing, right? But, but, but the, you get a bunch of lawyers. I mean, that's what these folks were. Lawyers of the, of the law. You, you give lawyers something simple. Give a lawyer a, a simple document. When they're finished with it, God help us all. Okay? So these guys got their hands on 60 words in our English about what constituted you know, Sabbath rest. And before they were done, they filled volumes. 24 chapters in the Talmud uh, was devoted to the concept of what constituted Sabbath rest, what God meant when he said take the day off. I'll give you a flavor of this. Okay, I'm not going to read all 24 chapters. This comes right out of what they said. Okay, here's what the rules. A person couldn't carry any object on the Sabbath that weighed more than a dried fig. So if you wore false teeth, you'd have to take them out on the Sabbath, uh, before the Sabbath, or else you would be in violation of Sabbath law. If a person wore a wooden leg, it would have to be removed lest he or she be in violation of carrying a burden on the Sabbath. Nothing could be bought or sold, that was forbidden, and clothing could not be dyed or even washed on the Sabbath. No fire could be lit or extinguished, including the fire of a lamp to give light to your house on the Sabbath. Although fire that was already lit, in other words, if a lamp, these were oil burning lamps, obviously, if a lamp was already lit before the Sabbath began, you could leave it on. Now, because of that, to this very day, in the Orthodox Jewish homes, they have their uh, houses uh, uh, outfitted with the automatic timers, right? And they're all designed to go on right before the Sabbath. You can't kindle a fire on the Sabbath. That's the idea behind turning on a light. You're kindling the, you're kindling the, uh, the element. It becomes red hot and begins to glow. It's kindling a fire. So you have to turn your lights on before the Sabbath starts. Well, what if you forget? Well, you're going to be in the dark all day, okay? Uh, all night. So what they do is they have these automatic timers. In case they do forget, the thing snaps on right before the Sabbath starts. That way they're not in the dark all night, okay? Uh, furthermore, you couldn't look into a mirror on the Sabbath because you might see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it out. That would constitute work and therefore be a violation of the Sabbath. You couldn't take a bath on the Sabbath because perhaps while you were in the bathtub, water would spill out onto the floor, thus washing the floor. Clear violation of the Sabbath. If a person became ill on the Sabbath, you could only treat the person to stabilize them. So if they were bleeding, you could only, you, you, could, you, could not, you could just stop the bleeding. You couldn't do anything to promote healing, okay? So, all you, you know, just stabilize or, or, or just whatever you have to do to, you know, uh, take them out of danger. But you couldn't do anything more to heal them on the Sabbath, right? And so, guys, on and on it went, page after page, chapter after chapter of what the rabbis interpreted Sabbath rest to mean and because by the time they were done wow because of all their man-made laws traditions and interpretations they had so perverted the idea of sabbath rest that the people dreaded the sabbath every week jesus said that the sabbath was made for man not man for the sabbath it was supposed to be a blessing i mean Instead of being the greatest blessing of the week, 
these men had turned it into the biggest burden. So Jesus, during his earthly ministry, never violated or, or broke Sabbath laws. God intended it. He only broke, and maybe this is why he did break the Sabbath. Uh, he wasn't breaking God's law. He went around, possibly if he did it on purpose, and he probably did in some ways, he did it to show people that the, religious, the religion of the Pharisees and scribes and so on was not the religion God had given Israel. The Sabbath being the main example of that. That they had taken a very simple concept. God gave his people to bless them. They had twisted it and turned it into the biggest burden um, of the entire week. And so Jesus said, I'm not playing this game. I'm not playing this game. All right. This is not what I intended when I gave you the Sabbath from Sinai. Not what I intended at all. So he only violated their faulty man-made interpretations of what constituted Sabbath law. Besides, again, as God in human form, Jesus was the only one, because he had given the Sabbath to Israel, he was the only one who had the authority to suspend Sabbath law, you know, or to abrogate it altogether if he chose to. Because once again, Mark 2.28, he said, The Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. He made it. It was his creation. He could do it whatever he wanted to do. He's God. Now, this comes into play, that little bit of information, uh, as we read John chapter 9. Because when Jesus healed this blind guy, he violated several of their man-made laws regarding the Sabbath. First of all, he spit on the dirt. Now, this is interesting. I didn't know this until I was studying this uh, for this message. But uh, apparently the rabbis believed that when a person spit on the dirt, it created, you know, as the spittle landed on the ground, it created a little furrow. And they said, that's the problem. You're, you're, you're creating a furrow with the spittle, which is plowing. You can't plow on the Sabbath. So you can't spit on the ground. First violation. Secondly, the Lord mixed the spittle with the dirt, making clay or mortar. Oh, that's a big no-no. Can't make mortar on the Sabbath. And then finally, he put the clay in this guy's eyes to heal him. And no, no, you couldn't heal somebody completely on the Sabbath, just stop the bleeding or, or whatever they needed just to kind of, you know, get them past the Sabbath where you can heal them on Sunday, that kind of thing. So, you know, three strikes you're out kind of thing. And Jesus, you know, really irritated these guys by doing this. So verse 17, they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said, you know, what do you say? What do you who do you think he is? Oh, I think he's a prophet. Verse 18, but the Jews, the Pharisees, did not believe concerning Jesus. They didn't believe that Jesus was a prophet, Messiah. The Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind. Oh, I'm sorry, he's talking about the blind guy. The Pharisees didn't believe that the blind guy had actually been born blind, that Jesus actually healed him. They thought the guy was faking it. I don't know why he would do that. Who wakes up one morning and says, I think I'll pretend I'm blind and I was blind and I'm healed now. I don't know. So, you know. so they didn't believe that he was blind at all and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them cautiously, as we'll see why in a moment. 
His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind, but, but by what means he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Look, he's of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, the Pharisees, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he, Jesus, was the Christ, Messiah, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. The reason this man's parents feared upsetting the Pharisees was because they knew they had the power to excommunicate them from the synagogue. And folks, that was a big deal. A big deal. First of all, every Jewish town had only one synagogue. Now, the big cities had more than that, but most people at that time lived in the smaller towns, okay? And uh, every small Jewish town, and a lot of towns that were had... To have a synagogue, you had, I think it was 10. Had to have 10 uh, Jewish men to start a synagogue. And uh, so even towns that were not predominantly Jewish, if they had 10 Jewish guys, they could start a synagogue. But every Jewish town had a synagogue, of course. But it was only one synagogue, basically in the center of town. They built their town around the synagogue because it was the center, the heart and soul of the community, of social life in that town. To be excommunicated from the synagogue meant, first of all, you were cut off from any social interaction with the people of that community. They considered you a spiritual leper to be avoided by one and all. Number two, your family disowned you and considered you as dead. How'd you like that? Your family, in their minds, you no longer existed. Number three, your boss fired you and nobody else would hire you. Your ability, that meant your ability to provide for yourself and your family was removed from you. I would imagine that most of these, if not all of these families had to move. How do you continue to survive? How do you work? How do you, you know, you couldn't. Uh, so it, it forced these people to be, to, to leave town, basically. Number four, you were forbidden from taking part in the religious services in the synagogue, as we said, or in the ritual worship of the temple. So you were completely cut off from God in the process. And finally, anyone in the community caught helping a person that had been put out of, put out of the synagogue would be themselves excommunicated. So you, you can see why the parents of, these, of this man was terrified. They were terrified to, to say anything that would upset the Pharisees, lest they would cast them out of the synagogue. That would ruin your life, basically. Okay? Verse 24, so they again called the man, so they, they put this guy out. And they just talked to his parents for a while. And they said, look, we, we don't know who healed him and whatever. Uh, he's of age, ask him. So they called for the guy again who was, uh, who was blind and said to him, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. Now, guys, give God the glory may have two meanings. The first is the one I think is what it probably means. But um, it was a form of an oath. It was, it was their way of, of forcing this guy to take an oath. In other words, swear to us now. How are you healed? Tell the truth. You can, the same phrase is used in Joshua chapter 7 of Achan. Remember how that he had taken some of the, some of the things that God had forbidden? Uh, because Ai was the first, uh, I, I, they, from Jericho, I should say, 
uh, the first city they conquered in the promised land and Achan said, God says, the first belongs to me of the spoil. After that, any town you conquer, you can have the spoil. Achan took a few things, hit him in his tent, and God, you know. Anyways, uh, eventually he was confronted, and Joshua said, give glory to God. Give God glory. Tell us the truth. And so they're probably picking up on that. It was, it was, a, little, it was a little stronger than just, you know, uh, hey, come on, tell us the truth. It was probably, look, swear by an oath right now that you're telling us the truth. What happened? What happened? It's probably what is in view here. Uh, you know, we know this guy's a sinner. It couldn't have happened the way you say it happened. He couldn't have healed you. Unless he did it on, by the power of Satan. Matthew 12, they accused him of that too. Or it could mean that they were basically saying to him, maybe it means both. That the Pharisees were demanding that God, you know, don't give this Jesus. They won't even say his name. They, they said, you know, this guy. Uh, but they were saying, could be saying to him, look, don't even give him any credit for your healing. Give God the glory. Because this guy, we, we, we believe he's a sinner. How could he have done this? So if you really were healed of your blindness, God had to do that. Verse 24 again, so they called, Pharisees called the man who was blind, said to him, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. This man refused to get sucked into a debate concerning whether or not Jesus had violated the Sabbath and was therefore a sinner. I'm sure he didn't feel he was qualified to debate with these men anyways. I mean, these were scholars of the law of Moses. Instead, though, he chose to just keep it simple. A lot of wisdom here, by the way. He chose to just keep it simple. He said, look, I only know one thing. Once I was blind, but now I see. Now, I love that. Okay, I love that. We said a couple of weeks ago that you don't have to be a theologian to be a witness for Jesus. And in fact, some Christians try to act like they know more than they know because they're embarrassed that the lack of knowledge they have, they've just gotten saved. Well, you're just saved. I mean, I was going to hold you. So what? Oh, I can't, I can't be a witness for Jesus. I, I don't know anything yet. Do you know your testimony? Can you tell people what God has done for you? Once I was blind, now I see. That's what this guy did. He gave his testimony. Anyone can do that, right? Until you maybe have your doctrine nailed down a little bit. All you can say is to people, look, what do you think about Calvinism? Okay? Are you pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? I, I don't know what you're talking about. I just got saved, uh, you know, half hour ago. I don't know any of that stuff. I just know I was, once I was blind, now I see. One author put it well. He said, that testimony has been echoed by millions down through the centuries. New Christians not qualified to debate theological issues can always say of their new vision of Christ as Savior... Once I was blind, now I see. It is hard to refute a testimony like that, end quote. Amen. Verse 26, then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, a little frustrated by this time, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? 
I gotta give it, I gotta give it to this guy, okay? I gotta hand it to this guy. What he lacked in theological knowledge he made up for in chutzpah. Now, listen, no doubt being blind his whole life and having to put up with people that treated him like a terrible sinner. Remember we the Jewish mindset in those days? If you were born with a handicap, now imagine this. You're a kid born with a handicap. Maybe you're blind or mute or you can't walk. The rabbis taught, well, either you're born blind because either your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents sinned, we've talked about this, or maybe even you sinned in the womb. Bizarre concept. Prenatal sin. They believed that. So to see a guy who had been born blind all his life, he had to hear people walk past him snickering, laughing, talking about how he must be the worst sinner out there to be born blind. All his life, having put up with that ridicule, it toughened him up, though, didn't it? I mean, you know, after a while, it's almost like, you know, you get thick-skinned. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt anymore, but you get kind of thick-skinned about it. And uh, this guy became hard as nails because of all the ridicule he had endured for all of his life. It served him well here, didn't it? It served him well here. He wasn't intimidated by these religious big shots in the least. He could care less. First of all, you know, he didn't, well, he didn't care about how big their phylactery was hanging off their head, you know, and uh, all their other things, the tassels on the bottom of their robes indicating they were, you know, big shot teachers. I mean, the Pharisees were used to people falling all over them, right? Um, that's what rabbi means, my great one. Jesus said, you love walking through the marketplaces and hearing people say, my great one, my great one. You love the best seats in the synagogues and at the feast. You love it when people praise you and admire you and so on. But Jesus said that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. These guys were used to people falling all over them with praise and reverence and even fear because they had power. They did. They, they could really ruin your life by excommunicating you from the temple or from the synagogue. But this guy didn't care. This guy didn't care. I'm sure his words, you can hear a little bit of the sarcasm in them, right? Well, you, I already told you. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become one of his disciples? <laughs> now, look, I think that was sarcasm, okay? I'm, I'm pretty sure he didn't think they really were interested in becoming Jesus' disciples. This was the fourth time in this chapter that people had asked this man, how were you healed? First time was his friends, and that was fine. But now the Pharisees three times, okay? And by this time, I think he's irritated. I think he's, he's through with the whole deal. He's had it, right, with these guys. And um, remember, he's just received his sight after being blind his whole life. I am sure, I could be wrong, but I'm sure that the last thing he wanted was to waste time looking at these guys, their ugly, twisted, hate-filled Pharisee faces. You know, I, kept, I just received my sight like half hour ago. I want to go out and see what a bird looks like. I don't, I've heard him chirping my whole life, singing. I'm going to go outside and see what a bird looks like. 
I've felt water my whole life. I like to see what it looks like. I'm, I'm looking at you, your gnarly, ugly faces, you know? I mean, you know, the, the, the Bible often, uh, you know, overlooks or doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, keep, you know, doesn't give us a lot of detail what I'm going for. If the Bible gave us a lot of detail about different, everything that was in the Bible, forget about a pocket translation, okay? <laughs> you have to have a U-Haul hooked up to your car to pull, you know, the 150 volumes. But can you imagine a man being born blind all his life, hearing his mother's voice but never being able to look into her eyes? I'm sure he touched her face many times growing up just to get in his mind what she looked like. When they called his parents in and he laid eyes on his mom for the first time, I'm, I, that had to be one of the most poignant moments in the history of the Bible, mankind. I'm sure he stared at her, walked up and touched her face to make sure this was in fact his mother. Gave her the biggest hug, I, I think he probably wept. I mean, he didn't want to waste his time with these guys after he had told them four, three different times how Jesus had healed him. And so after he said to the Pharisees, do you want to become his disciples too? Verse 28, it says they reviled him. And the Greek is a strong word, meaning to slander, strongly insult, verbally abuse. You can imagine what they did to this guy. See, they, they had no respect for this man at all. They didn't care one whit about this guy. You would think that these holy men, quote unquote, these representatives of God Almighty, the God of love and mercy, you would think that seeing a man who had been born blind healed, they would have fallen on their, they would have hugged this guy, fallen on their faces, and praised the God of Israel who had sent Messiah because obviously Jesus is the Messiah. They didn't care. They didn't care one bit. This guy was not even a, a blip on their radar. They could have cared less about him, about, you know, because they didn't care about people. They were not, listen, good shepherds. That becomes the segue into chapter 10. It's all about the same day. So it says in verse 28, Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple. You want to become one of his? You know, he said, Do you want to become one of his disciples? <laughs> you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. Okay? We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, don't even say his name. We do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Why? This is a marvelous thing. That you do not know where he is from yet. <laughs> He opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now look, this guy was no theologian, I'm sure. But that doesn't mean he was stupid. It seems obvious he knew his scriptures, at least some of the Jewish scriptures. 
when he said in verse 31 that we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. He could have had several scriptures in mind. I'll give you some possibilities. Psalm 66, verse 18. The psalmist said, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear my prayers. Job 27, verse 9. Will God hear his cry, the cry of the hypocrite, when trouble comes upon him? No, was the idea. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear your prayers. Psalm 34, verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to listen their cry. Proverbs 15, 29. We can go on. I'll just give you this last one. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. So I'm thinking that this guy was drawing on, you know, these scriptures and others like them, right? And so now he's using their own scriptures. They were scholars, remember that. Now he's using their own scriptures to make his point and school them with regard to who Jesus is. Earlier in verse 24, when they said to him, you know, give, give glory to God because this man is a sinner. We know he didn't heal you. You know, give God the glory. You know, it's God who did this, not this person. Well, he said to them, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. All I know is that I was once blind, but now I see. Now he's saying, we know that God doesn't hear sinners. But if any man be a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. See, so now... You know, he's, he's bringing these guys along to make his point, right? First, well, I don't know. Well, you, I don't know any of that. I just know once I was blind, now I see. Then he continues. But you know, our scriptures teach that God doesn't hear the prayers of sinners. God won't work through sinners to do good things. The fact that I'm healed, doesn't that confirm that this Jesus is from God a worshiper and doing his will? Otherwise, how could I be healed? Well, that was more than the Pharisees could take. The, verse 34, then they answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins. The contempt comes through. They also bought into the idea that this guy must be a sinner to be born blind, right? And so now they say, now it comes out. You were completely born in sins, and you are teaching us? Oh, the arrogance, the pride. And they cast him out of the synagogue. They excommunicated him. That's the best thing that ever happened to him. We'll see why next week. As I said to start our study today, chapter 9 is a continuation of John chapter 8, and is built around Jesus' declaration in verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He repeats that in verse 5 of chapter 9. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. But here's the thing. And I want you to notice the contrast as we move into chapter 10. Because this is what this is all about. Yes, Jesus really healed a real guy of a real malady, 
blindness, born blind. This is all true, all historical. But the bigger picture the Holy Spirit is presenting, He is presenting in spiritual terms a man born blind who received his spiritual sight and a group of men who were born blind who always thought they saw, they see, because they're so spiritual, right? Contrasting, right? Uh, interesting. It's interesting that the Holy Spirit, I mean, think about this. And, and, and the Lord often does this. He took a man, okay, who was born blind. He was a beggar. We learn he was a beggar from the passage. Um, perceived to be a sinner. Well, hello, guys. You Pharisees were also born sinners, okay? We're all sinners. The only difference is, are you going to be a sinner saved by grace or a sinner so filled with yourself that you go on in darkness? See, this, this is the point. The Pharisees, because they loved the darkness of religion, which was rooted in human works more than the light of God's truth rooted in his Son and in the gospel of grace, well, they were doomed to spend eternity in darkness for rejecting the light of the world, Jesus Christ. That is really the, the, the story. That's really the picture the Holy Spirit is presenting here. We're all in darkness. We're all in darkness when we are born into this world in Adam. Those who are willing to say, I'm in darkness and want to know the truth, God will get them the truth. Those who are proud and arrogant like the Pharisees and say, I'm not in darkness. I understand completely. And my way is the only way that's, that's right. Before Jesus is done, he's going to really nail these guys for their pride. Why were they so proud? Well, he said it earlier in chapter 3. I'll read these few scriptures. We'll close. John three nineteen. He said, The judgment of God is based on this fact. God's light came into the world. But people loved the darkness, the darkness of Satan's lies, more than the light of God's truth, for their actions were evil. People want to do evil, that's why they refuse to come to the light, John 3 tells us. There's a lot of people who are just like the Pharisees. And uh, they're in the church, by the way. They come to church. I'm not saying they're in the body of Christ. But they come to church. And they think... They are, you know, in the light. They know the truth. They're Christians. Yet they're still walking in darkness like the Pharisees. And of people like that, Peter said in 2 Peter 2.17, These are wells without water. Clouds carried by a tempest. For whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Jude adds a little more. He said, these are spots, Jude, verses 12 and 13, these are spots in your love feasts. In other words, they're, they're coming to church. They're involved in the potlucks, okay? They seem a part of the community there, but well, they are. But they don't, know the Lord. they don't know the Lord. These are spots, like cancerous spots, in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, they're totally confident they're saved and going to heaven serving only themselves. 
They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. You realize that these very Pharisees that Jesus confronted in chapters 8 and 9 are at this moment in Hades, whereas this cursed blind man that Jesus healed is right now in heaven rejoicing around the throne. An outcast, the Pharisees looked at this guy as a non-issue. He wasn't even human in their minds. He was born blind. He's such a, he's such a terrible sinner, he's not even human, okay? He's one of those deplorables, okay? There's a whole basket full of them. He's one of those guys, okay? Somebody said that, I don't know. And yet today, he's the one shining as the sun. And they, weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth, as they are in the darkness, not just now, but forever. That, that's something. That should frighten every person reading this chapter to get right with God if you're not. If you're not sure you've received Christ, you better make sure right now, today. Come on up, we'll pray with you. Don't be like the Pharisees who thought they were right with God, only to find out they weren't. Now we'll leave it there, since the rest of the chapter really serves as an introduction into one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, John 10 containing one of the greatest discourses in the Bible, the Good Shepherd Discourse. We'll study that, God willing, next time. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. It is a light to our feet, lamp to our feet, a light to our path. If we walk in the truths of your word, we will never stumble in darkness. Thank you, Lord. Father, we ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. Now, Lord, you'd be honored and glorified, and people would be set free from Satan's lies. Father, we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.